Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. Line, line, line. Line, 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 line. Line, 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 line. The Voyage Home. That's what that trailer is for this week. I think you had a lot more problems with the trailer than I did. 
Oh, I'm sure of that. <laughs> I I thought the trailer, yes, it's one of those older trailers that kind of has, you know, relatively, you know, it's it's not big chunks like trailers from the 50s where it's like, here's a 30 second scene and here's another 30 right, second right. scene. But this one is like, you know, here's a, a fish out of water moment in San Francisco. Here's another cute fish out of water moment in San Francisco. Oh, and here's <laughs> no, no, another no, no. cute fish out let's of water. Let's be clear. It's all of the cute fish out of water sequences in San it's, Francisco. It it's pretty all much of is. The, it's all of them. Yeah. yeah. And but, here is some rain stuff in the future. <laughs> That's pretty much all of it. You actually made a really good point about this trailer, though, because I, I watched the trailer, and with the benefit of having just watched the movie, it looks like they give away the whole plot, like the whole thing. You know, uh, what you know from the trailer is that they, there is a horrible probe that is probing the planet Earth of the future, and uh, that the crew of the Enterprise, now HMS Bounty, which you don't actually know, that's not a thing you know, but you, of their uh, of the warbird is flying home to turn themselves in, and they um, they get the call that there's a thing, and they realize, oh my gosh, we have to go back in time. So now we know it's a time time travel story, and they have to find the secret to the future in the past, and and so that to me implied the whole thing. But you had a really good point. I'm going to let you reveal that point because it's that good. It's it is. They they leave the entire plot of whales out of the trailer. You don't get an an iota. I mean, you do see when they're in the water and you see the whale tail. <laughs> you see the whale you know, tail flap next yeah. to them. But it's in no way there is there any context that they actually just saved that whale and brought it to the future. It's just for all you know, as their ship crashed in the ocean and the whale swimming by. Which, you know, just like uh, just which like is, in Castaway, it's <laughs> so ridiculous. Why is there a, 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 if, given all of that? You you finish the trailer and you think, okay, let's assume I hadn't seen the movie. Why the hell is there a giant whale in the foreground of this shot? And so on that on that front, Andy, you are absolutely right. They do a very effective job of burying uh, the the big secret of the film. Uh, and keeping it out of the trailer, that's great. And I still think it's a crappy trailer. It's just too too much. It doesn't build any intensity. It's just this. It is the ADHD of trailers. Putting myself back in 1986 watching this trailer, this is the reason that, you know, I think this trailer worked so well for people because it makes it makes Star Trek look like it's kind of fun. You know, they're hanging out in modern San Francisco and you see these future people trying to, you know, get used to this stuff that, that is present day. And it's funny. And as a as a you know 13 year old going to the movies and watching this trailer, I guarantee that I laughed watching this trailer. And that's probably one of the things that I wanted to uh, go see is because it made me laugh so much. I think that's why this is such a successful Star Trek film and drew in so many people who might not have been kind of the hardline Star Trek fans. Um, does it mean that the film itself has issues? Uh, you know, it's hard to say from the trailer. Well, it's not hard to say from the trailer. <laughs> it's not that hard to say from the trailer. <laughs> the trailer pretty much tells you that it's a little different than what you're used to if you're a big Star Trek fan. I think in context of, of the production company at the time trying to sell the movie and draw in an audience, I think it was effective. And the fact that it keeps the whales out, I say it's a success. All right, and and I think it is also possible for me to be uh, to be emotionally uh, enraged by this trailer, and for you to be right at the same time. <laughs> well, modern you is enraged at this trailer. <laughs> That's right. Don't tell you're, me. Don't tell you me said, that you're. <laughs> yes, no. Everything you just said is exactly right. My younger self was probably laughing right along with you because he was also an idiot. Boy, the planet Earth has 
Spock in tow, we're headed back to the 80s with director Leonard Nimoy's Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you are a regular listener of the show and you just aren't getting enough of us, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thenextreel. Everyone who becomes a patron will automatically start getting our exclusive Patreon patrons-only weekend show, the Saturday Matinee, where we talk trailers, film news, box office, and whatever else strikes our fancy. Plus, we do lists, all sorts of fun lists. This weekend, we're going to be doing our top three movies featuring Animal Rescues. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Who wouldn't want to tune in for that? I know. I love the box office news, but I'm really here for your animal rescue faves. Uh, Everybody (laughs) is, Pete. That's what people want. (laughs) Andy, what what do people want out of this movie? Uh, uh, That's a good question. Um, This is... The probably the most just light and entertaining of the Star Trek films, um, but also divisive because it's so uh, different, I think, from what uh, Star Trek uh, generally stands for. Um, I, you know, this is one I would really love to to have a conversation with Gene Roddenberry and see what he says about kind of the general tone and the direction that they took here. I think it's a film that that has a, a deeper message, um, might be a little uh, strong, but I think it's, it's you know, it's pretty straightforward. Interestingly, I think it's it pairs a lot uh, well with Star Trek The Motion Picture in that it's kind of an alien object he- heading to Earth, and uh, these people just have to figure out, you know, what is it trying to say to basically save the planet? And I think that's a really interesting connection between these two. I you know it's it, this is a tricky film for me though because I I have a very strong connection to it because it did hit me at that perfect age that um I just really loved everything that was going on here but it is a film that hasn't aged as well for me and I think because of the way that they do connect it to the time it does uh, tend to date it a little bit, particularly with some of the comedy that I really struggle with. Well, and that's a, I don't know, the way I, I had a really hard time keeping my attention uh, uh, glued to the film. And I know that, that is, that's for two reasons. Number one, I've seen it a lot. 
And, and that should be telling, right? I've seen the movie a lot. I've watched it a lot with friends and family. It's a movie that's, that's just really easy and palatable, right? Easy to watch. I think it's harder to watch alone, frankly. When you don't have the gift of somebody else laughing alongside you, um, once you've seen all the jokes, once you've, you've kind of internalized the delivery enough, it, it gets a little bit boring. And I, that's kind of where I was on this thing. Um, it is, however, when you think about Star Trek kind of the series— uh, and the camp of the series, what what the series sometimes tried to do, I'm thinking specifically about episodes like The Trouble with Tribbles. Um, this is peak Trek, right? This is this gets us into um, Trek enjoying itself, Trek enjoying itself on a, a modest, a, a more modest sort of TV production budget, uh, and um, and and Trek trying to to really capitalize on these likable characters in as you say these fish out of water situations. Uh, I I found myself saying this is the Gilligan's Island of Star Trek movies, um, and and I think that for me that that sort of contextualizes it, and it, it also allows me to say I don't go to Trek for comedy, uh, and that's I think where the movie sort of starts to fall apart, and and why I you know I I would agree with you it doesn't really age all that well well um, it's funny because because i wouldn't call it an out and out comedy you know it's not like no. will ferrell yeah, comedy true. or something like that and i do think that with people like simon Pegg involved in later versions of star trek there still is some of that comedy in there um i'm curious how those ones hold up you know give them a, a 20 years or 30 years and see how they hold up but i i think the problem i have with this one is the comedy uh, tends to just be um, a much more dated type of comedy than that might just not work as well. Plus, I just don't think it's comedy that's as well thought through. I think a lot of the comedy, they're really relying on those those gags that come along with the fish out of water stuff. And mm-hmm. sure, I think some of it is kind of funny when you put them into, like when you have Chekhov, the Russian, asking a cop, you know, where are the nuclear vessels? You know, I, I can get that there's some comedy there. But unfortunately... I think you have to look at script first and it all comes down. The problems I have come down to script. If the comedy as is integrated better into the story where I believed that that was probably the only way for these people to be doing the things that they're doing, I probably would have bought it much better now. But as I look at it now, I feel that a lot of the stuff that these guys are doing, they're really just writing it into the script because they're going for the laughs and I just don't, I don't feel that they're as appropriate anymore. You know, I, I feel like step, stepping away from it, I feel like I don't think that these characters would be doing these things because I think that they're smarter than that. Oh, wow. That's a really good point. Like they, they have, they already have precedent, uh, a lot of precedent on screen, big screen and small screen. They wouldn't do that. It, it's an interesting thing, you know, to hear Nimoy talk about it. And in fact, everybody that is interviewed uh, that I have seen interviewed about this film, all has the same general sort of emotional response, a general feeling about the film, that they loved it. They love the experience. It's the most fun they've ever had on a Trek film. Uh, you know, to hear Nimoy talk about it, he says things like, you know, it took us some time, uh, speaking in the context of the first few films, the first three films, uh, it took us some time to figure out how to enjoy ourselves. And in Star Trek IV, we thought we'd do a caper. We'd literally put our feet on the ground in San Francisco and uh, and do a caper film. And that's kind of what it, it, it feels like. It's moving in that direction, but it's a little bit too madcap of a caper film. The humor is too situational. 
And so I, I had this little thought experiment, like doing this whole sort of time travel to now thing. You know, if you again, if you put yourself back into that period, uh, here we were watching the film where they're coming back in time to our present day in 1986. Can this be a great film uh, if you can't actually take the story out of the situation in which it presents itself? And my sense is, no, you, you can't, uh, because it doesn't have a, a sense of sort of cultural resonance um, that uh, allows it to be a great story beyond what you have to see on screen. What do you think? That's an interesting way of looking at it. I think that it is very much stuck in the uh, a lot of the gags that they're doing here. And I, I don't think you could effectively take that story and shift it. You know, I, I think it is kind of stuck in the period it's in. And to that extent, I, you know, I have to say I can still step back and enjoy it. But I think you're right. And, and you know, I, this kind of goes for or the last film we talked about too, Star Trek Three. If I can just sit back and step myself out of, uh, or take myself out of kind of my analytical mindset, I can just I can sit back and I can enjoy it enough. You're probably right. It's going to be a lot easier with other people to kind of enjoy it with. Um, when I start sitting down and really kind of analyzing it, that's when I, all of these problems really uh, stand out for me, and it, it gets it, it gets to be a much more frustrating situation. And I, yeah, I don't think this translates as well. And again, it, for me, it all goes back to the script. I, I agree with you. I think that's, um, I, I think the script is, is problematic. And, uh, and, and it's interesting because uh, of the hands that are involved in the script, uh, which we can talk about, but I have a different thing that I want to bring up before we move on, which is about the Warbird, Andy. This has bugged me <laughs> since it was in theaters. It, it has bugged me. And I think that this one thing actually weighs so much on me, it colors the my entire impression of the film by at least a half star. Wow. Do you know what I'm talking about? Tell me. It is a different bridge. They redesigned the bridge of the Warbird from the one that they captured to, after three months, they gutted it, apparently, and made it a new bridge. And that has always made me insane for a couple of reasons. First of all, and you'll remember I said this last week, I wanted to see more of that Warbird. I wanted to see more of Krug's Warbird and uh, and more of that bridge, more of that Warbridge. I thought that was so great. And to get this where it has essentially been, they, they bury in this line, right? They bury, uh, you know, we've been on Vulcan for maintenance and conversion of some of its operating systems, right? Whatever. What is that? Like, that doesn't mean we've refashioned the steel and hull and everything to make it look like a Starfleet vessel so that everybody has a place to sit. And that has always made me crazy um, that that if this film was supposedly, uh, you know, the, they were already starting to write this film uh, as, you know, they finished the last film, uh, it, it has always made me crazy that that they didn't give us the right Warbird. Are you just upset that that when Kirk is sitting in his chair, we don't get the fantastic uh, purple and pink disco lights over his head? I think <laughs> no, that's but, really what's bothering you. <laughs> that, that, you know, it's a variation on a theme. There's something that feels so right to me about Kirk sitting on a throne. <laughs> and I think that they gutted the throne. <laughs> Yeah, so it, I know that's a terrible, it's a, it's a silly thing to be caught up on, but I'm, I, James Tiberius Christ, give me a break. 
it's funny. I never never noticed that. Um, although it's funny because I was watching this and I'm like, man, they are lucky that the warbird like seats people the way that their <laughs> ship seated people because <laughs> because otherwise well, they wouldn't know where to sit. And little did I realize that they actually did a whole redesign just so they specifically could. How funny! Yes, I yes, guess I wasn't paying well enough attention. In the last well, film. it it comes into into contrast and and particularly since we're doing these deep scene dives, right? And because you you can go back to the images uh, yeah. that we pulled from last week and and um, uh, compare it to this week and. You'll see that you know they're just a they're just not capable of the kinds of shots in the original Warbird. So I get it. There's a very practical reason to redesign the Warbird bridge, but uh, um, I, I feel like it was a a um, uh, sort of absence of creativity uh, in, in that. I think I think we could have had a really cool thing if you actually forced the crew to be in the stupid Warbird bridge. Like they stole yeah. a ship, let them live with it. <laughs> That's my position. I, okay. I think that's a good position. I like it. Oh, I I'll have it. to pay attention to that next Sla- time I watch it and see, <laughs> see if should. I start getting upset about it. I hope you do. I hope <laughs> I've made as contagious. I am. Uh, I need to go splash some water on my face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so funny. So funny. You know, I, I will say just to just to completely change the tone. I loved that we, you know, we at the beginning of the film, we start uh, in kind of a, a I guess you could call it a pre-trial for Kirk since he's in in absentia Mm -hmm. of the Klingons, you know, accusing him of of blowing up their people. One, we get that fantastic vid screen work where it's showing us the last movie instead of anything new. That's equally aggravating. Including shots outside of the ship getting blown up, (laughs) which is so convenient for them to have a camera out there to, to actually show that. Um, but I love that we get so many crazy aliens uh, that are a part of the Federation, including like the people that are the hairy robot faces. I mean, right. what are those things? <laughs> I know. It's great. See, every Star Trek movie now needs a cantina scene. And this time it was actually a courtroom. It was. I'm just excited. I want to know like, if there is a Wikipedia for Star Trek. I'm sure there must be that actually has cataloged all these different races and who they are because uh, I, some of them are just so weird and uh, creative and, and some of them are a little dumb, but I, I enjoy seeing them all. Well, I think you'll be thrilled then to visit uh, Memory Alpha, memory-alpha.wikia.com. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's going to be your answer. Oh, is it? It is. I think you're going to get excited about it, too, when you start playing with it. Wow. So it, it turns out there is. I don't know that it's as... It, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't been through the depths, the bowels of it, but there are 42,947 separate pages uh, inside Memory Alpha, and uh, it's it's deep. How would I search for something like that? Like, I, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, her, searching for Harry Robot face. Yeah. Harry Robot Face. <laughs> Who is Harry Robot Face? One of the ships that we hear um, losing its power and struggling about, uh, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to keep our systems on. It's the Yorktown, and that is a name that is definitely going to come back in the series. It's kind of a, I don't, I don't know if it's a famous name within the series, but it certainly is a recurring name, much like Rand, whatever she is this time. <laughs> She's a different job every time. I know. She's so funny. It's I, I don't know. What was she this time? And where was she? I saw that she was in the credits, but I'm like, uh, where where was Commander Rand? 
Well, there's this. There's it, it's one of the. Uh, I think it's one of the sequences of losing power where she's. It's like a very high angle shot looking down on her face, and she's saying something into a speaker. On the, what? On the space station? Was she on the space station or one of the ships? I, I think so, but I think we see her. I don't know. It feels like we're seeing her from the point of view of a video of a vid screen. So I'm mm-hmm. not entirely sure what where we where we're seeing her. I'm gonna have where to go she back is. And look again. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Majel Barrett's in there, so I think somewhere too. Uh, what about this losing power in a ship thing? You know, okay, so they're losing power in spaceships and and uh, and space stations and stuff. But and again, this goes back to the script and issues with things like this. It's like if a spaceship loses power, isn't it also going to lose its gravity? I mean, people are going to like you know not have any air to breathe, and that what the Yorktown seemed to be doing just that, well, except for the gravity. But nobody else seems to have those issues. And even in the space station, I liked that you see the spaceships that are inside kind of start drifting away. But it's like if that ship starts drifting away, it's going to crash into a wall <laughs> and like rip through a, it. Let's it's forget. Like, it's a spaceship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted to see that. And maybe this is the non-light version that, you know, I would have enjoyed seeing some of that stuff happen in. But I mean, that, you know... That's what I wanted to see in this uh, on my recent watch. Well, first of all, I think uh, I I think it. Well, I can't remember if there was a a trend to this in the next generation, but in Deep Space Nine, we definitely start getting the the systems failure, the implications of a broader systems failure, and and you know where you actually have like oxygen be an issue, right? They're running out of air. I know they I know they touched on this in the next generation, but it wasn't a thing that was like a regular. This is a regular risk, but the gravity bit. Uh, that one strikes me too, and it's why uh, I, I feel like it's important to at least uh, tease there is a Star Trek movie where we actually get to see that, and uh, that's a good thing. It, yes, it is a good thing. Yes, it is. Um, so I, I think you're, I think you're right. It always, it, it's, it's a thing about you know. Uh, about Star Trek, about all of these space movies. I mean, you know, okay, one of the prequels, the Star Wars, it's the, um, I think it's the second one, maybe the second one is the third one. There's the opening um, it, where it opens where Anakin and Obi-Wan are in separate ships and they're they're flying through the the battle over... Yeah, that's in the, the planet. third one. Third one. And where they end up, end up yeah, fighting. Yeah, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of systems go down and the ship starts to fall in, and they're still in space and there's a lot of sliding, right? And yes. that's always bugged me. There's no sliding in space. <laughs> well, and another point that of, of issue I have a little bit is the Cetacean Institute. The whole idea of having an institute that actually is taking care of whales it's so absurd when you know what a whale is and how big a whale is. It's not like, you know, Shamu. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, obviously blackfish. There's enough issues with having Shamu sized whales in a in an aquarium that people can go see. But to have a humpback whale, especially in the little <laughs> dinky thing that they have that they show us, it's like, that's what you have your whale in. Does it move? Oh goodness! <laughs> well, and I love that, and and you know, we we should say this was this was actually on uh, the list of vacation spots was the the Monterey Bay Aquarium where they did a lot of these these shots for the exterior of the Cetacean Institute, and what I love so much is the the like uh, helicopter. It wasn't even a helicopter shot. It was, it's a mat, but they it's a f- like the it's a mat of the exterior 
that right. has had to be like it is so uh, dramatically redesigned to make it so much bigger. You know, when we get that sh- that exterior shot of her, you know, coming out, and it's it's like this really shallow, yeah, it's <laughs> like pool, but it's very very like it's very big, still not big enough for for us to actually see where a whale would, for example, turn around. Um, yeah, right. But uh, it, it's totally incompatible. When you go to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, uh, it, let's just say it's not that big. No. Did we go together? No. I never, we went never with made you. that. I trip. went with Ange. I uh, that Ange. was on my road trip of of movie destinations when we were living in Northern California, and and uh, I, I remember being really supremely disappointed at that as well. Well, the fact that they didn't have whales, or just <laughs> or the, the scope wasn't quite <laughs> the scope wasn't quite there. Yeah, it's it, but even then, it's like the scope is still so small. Like when yeah. you understand what a whale is and what a whale would need to actually survive, it's like nah, that's not going to yeah. work. It was so silly. And then to see the whales, like they go under, you know, it's like an aquarium. You go down and it's like, oh, the whale is swimming right on the other side of the glass. How convenient is that? Well, because it can't move. <laughs> it can't yeah, exactly. Turn it's and a, dive right. and there's no place to go. What you don't realize is that there's glass on the other side. It's like, that's as <laughs> much as it gets. That's it. Yeah. Oh, dear. It. And then not to mention when they take the whales out of there. Like within a day, like they're they're swimming around in Alaska. It's like, how did that was a quick little shift? Yeah, because Ugh. I mean, did they f- did they fly the whales out there? I don't, right? I don't know. That, it's like, did they crate them up? And yeah, that's what I was wondering. It's like, <laughs> what? It's like they're right next to the ocean. Just like open the door and let it swim into the bay. <laughs> but no, we're gonna fly it to Alaska. So we're gonna and fly it to Alaska, right where the Russians exactly. are hunting whales. <laughs> <laughs> we've got this we've got this target zone unfortunately it's a hunting zone oh well i guess that's all we can do <laughs> oh so my. why do we why i mean this is really uh th- this is problematic and it is the central purpose of the film uh why why do we forgive so much because it is fun it is light i still enjoy it i mean there's so much i think that i still like about the film. And even if now when I watch it, I kind of am rolling my eyes more than I was when I first watched it. I just, I still find that it's, it's still entertaining. It's, I think the, I think what I find with this one is all the intentions are in the right place. I, I like the direction they're taking it. I, I just have more issues with it. Um, it certainly dropped a little in my estimation on this recent watch, but I still, I still end up having fun with it. It's, it's, I think it mostly it's because of the characters. I like these characters so much. You know what this movie is, Andy? It's like it's it's like Star Trek fan fiction about itself, right? It's like taking these <laughs> characters and putting them in these wildly, you know, out of context situations, and and uh, it it feels it it feels very much like that to me. Like it's just a love letter for to fans and and uh, let's and an, an experiment, and that is sort of what I have. Uh, a little bit against how the film came to be uh, and really the same thing with search for spock and it it feels very much you know when you talk about it as a as a trilogy it's not really a a trilogy it's a it, it is if there ever was an accidental trilogy this is it right and you hear some of the folks who are, are behind the film talk about it they really define it as yeah we we didn't we never wrote Khan with the intent that this was going to be a trilogy of of films 2 3 and 4 uh and and i think because of the way Khan came together and the people that you had working in it, and particularly Nicholas Meyer and his the, what he wanted to get across in that film, 
um, moving into, you know, to hear um, Harv Bennett talk about it, he said, you know, when you do this trilogy, there's this axiom in Hollywood, right? You, you send a cat up a tree, then you throw rocks at it, then you bring it home. That's trilogy. And that's what they did in this film. They send the cat up the tree with Khan. Uh, they, they throw rocks at it with the search for Spock. Everything's falling apart. And then they bring him home in the voyage home. And it's the, that's the, the you know, here, here's the new normal where we're all heroes again. And, um, and, and in that respect, because the way the last two movies came together almost improvisationally, it, it just lacks a sense of authentic continuity, believable continuity uh, that uh, I find disappointing now. Uh, and, and as I was watching this film, I kept thinking, I can't believe I'm saying this. I can't wait to watch Star Trek V, if only as an, as an exit to these three movies. Wow. I mean, it's not that I don't like it. The pieces of this film that I liked the most this time were, was the stuff in in the Star Trek like timeline, like the Star Trek continuity, right? I, in the twenty three hundreds. In the twenty three hundreds, right? It was the the brief bit. I mean, it was the the conversation between uh, Spock and and um, his father. Uh, I, I think was it, it's it ends up being what a forty five second part of the film and it's it is a true highlight for me. Well, and Spock doing his little test. I mean, that was for me. Yes. That was like a really interesting scene, seeing Spock um, kind of at his best as a Vulcan, and then getting hitting this human stumbling block. Yeah, I, I thought that was just a brilliant scene. Oh, it, truly, right? So these highlights are for me why I go to a Trek film and then they went they went back to the 80s and to they had they had their fun and now I'm I'm really ready for them to get serious about you know living in in their own timeline again. I still have to say I think the biggest problem is the script. I don't think the problem is the time travel. I don't think the problem is, you know, these guys getting stuck in the 80s. It's just a problem of just simple script work. And I go back to the fact that that uh, Nimoy and Bennett feel the need to or felt the need at the time to kind of be the ones that were kind of spearheading the whole script and and yes they brought in some other writers on this one. They brought in um, Steve Mearson and Peter Crikes to do some of the writing, but then, and then they, they promptly met with an accident. They, yeah, then they <laughs> prob- promptly kicked those guys out, and and Bennett wrote with Nicholas Meyer, bringing Meyer back, which was great. He did such great work with Khan, but I think that he, being as um, I guess you could say anachronistic, or you know, um, the guy who isn't the one who wants to follow the rules in the Star Trek universe, he's the one I think that brought a lot of the kind of the goofiness to the modern day uh, storyline. Um, but let me just read this line that Spock says. I mean, this is an example of the script just for me failing as as a screenplay. Um, this is when they first hear the whale transmission, or no, I shouldn't say that. Sorry, the probe transmission. In the future, after they get the planetary distress signal from Earth saying, don't come here, there's this probe that's going to destroy the planet. Um, they listen to the noise, and and Kirk says, what do you make of that? And Spock says, after hearing a noise over a recording of this probe, he says, most unusual, an unknown form of energy of great power and intelligence, evidently unaware that its transmissions are destructive. I find it illogical that its intentions should be hostile. It's like, how did he figure <laughs> all he of that out that? from listening to this noise? I mean, I understand, like, with V'ger, he's, like, sensing it from afar. 
But still, he doesn't say anything about that. Somehow, just listening to this, um, and really what it is, it's just it's a tool for these writers to get some of the exposition across that, hey, we need to say it's not in, it's not hostile, it's an intelligent thing, it doesn't know that it's being bad. Uh, it's like it's it's like them spelling out what they're trying to say with what this probe is so that these guys know, OK, it's not bad, but we have to figure it out. That to me is really sloppy screenwriting. I think so, too. And I think part of it is because it screams, you know, I, we talk a little bit about how, you know, this film uh, wears its mission, right? It's it's ethic uh, a, a little bit too heavily on its sleeve, right? That this is, this is very much a film about sort of the environment and, and you know, our our role in the environment and, and look at what we have wrought. Uh, that we have to go back in time to actually restock, you know, the whales. But it's also a political story. It's also about, like, here's a thing that we don't understand, and this is, you know, and, and here we're going to have this, uh, you know, we've got this military angle. We're going to get into the military. We don't understand the Ruskies. We, we've, we're we going to use words like Rusky, you know? I mean, it is very of, of a period, uh, and it, it's, it, it's max of just, you know, you have to think about this now. And you have to think about it this way. You have to think about our relationship to other, you know, powers in the world. And are we really listening to them? Are we just listening to, um, you know, do we only hear wub, 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 you know? And and I feel like that's that's another piece. It's just a, a, you know, backhanded story sensitivity. They're just ramming it down our throats. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I, I think they could have done some really interesting stuff having this probe coming to Earth. I don't know if you ever read the book Rendezvous with Rama. Um, it's a really interesting sci-fi novel about this probe that kind of comes to Earth and these people go to figure out what is it. And then it, it becomes this really interesting exploration of what is this thing that came to the planet before it then leaves. And it, there's really, it's not like, you know, sucking out the atmosphere and, you know, powering down everything. It's just, it's a really interesting kind of exploration of this thing. And I feel like they could have done something like that Um you know, the 13-year-old in me really still loves the time travel story back into the 80s, but I will now as an adult forever end up having issues with this film, which is really sad. You know, I uh, the here's what would have made it worse. <laughs> How about oh, that? Good. In terms of silver linings. Uh, word is that the studio sent note to Nicholas Meyer and Leonard and said, uh, when the probe comes in and it's doing its wah-wah-wah-wah, we would like you to subtitle a translation so that so that we know what the probe is saying and uh, uh apparently it is it is Nick Meyer and Leonard who said no we're not going to do that but that became a, a fight between the studio and uh the the writer and director and Harv said that that he wasn't a huge fan of time travel it's a it's an excuse to you know just sort of let things happen but, you know, had we gone the route of subtitling it, it would have, you know, talk about not letting you as the audience member parse anything yourself, not letting you have any sort of original thought uh, about the material at all. And and so in, in that regard, I think, hallelujah, we do have a little bit of mystery around this this strange thing. It may be silly that it's, you know, executed the way it is on screen, but it's it was actually a, a fine decision and it does leave something to think about. Yeah, and I definitely love that element of the storyline. I think it is actually fascinating that this thing does come to Earth 
Nobody knows why it's making these noises. It does talk to the whales at the end and then it leaves. But we don't yeah. know what it, what I mean, it's that's a really fascinating way to kind of build your story around this element. I've always loved that about this story. And maybe that's another reason that I kind of give it a pass because it's it's something that I think is unique. And I think nowadays, you know, the producers and the production company the the distributor might have more say in getting them to actually do those subtitles and spell that out a little more i love that it is left a mystery in terms of of history backstory of just sort of how the the movie came to be is do we have any uh, interesting sort of angles or stories beyond what we you know what we know about the the way the trilogy came together that we've talked about I think it's it's just one of those things where they were feeling very positive about the way that Search for Spock was going, and uh, Paramount uh, said we want you to do another one, and we want the same team. And they, you know, I think uh, I think at that time it was uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg was, um, and I think he and and or Don Steele were running Paramount, or maybe Don was running Paramount, and he was kind of the the head of the the motion pictures or something like that. But anyway, he met with him and said, you know, we're last time we were kind of, you know, uh, you know, we had you, you're on your training wheels this time. We're going to, you know, kind of let you go on your own. And so they gave him more, um, more freedom. And I think they let him kind of have a little bit more of his own vision. This was something that I was thinking about with this. And maybe this is another reason that I kind of give this a more of a pass this is, I think, what a lot of people are wanting the team that is kind of controlling the reins of Star Wars right now uh, to do. They want them to let people have a little bit more free reign to kind of explore and do their own stories and, and kind of play a little bit within the world, not necessarily be so beholden to what the higher-ups are dictating that they do and making sure that these people say, no, you've got to go down this path. You can tell this story, but you have to kind of push it into this direction and into this mold so that it fits. And I will say, I think that's something that the Star Trek world has gotten away with a little more, where they've actually had some more people coming in and and helming them. And it's, it's uh, for better or worse, they ended up feeling like, you know, people have had their own say in what the visions are for these films. I agree with that. That's an astute point, Andy. Uh, I can also see the other side, like you look at Marvel and, and, and you can feel like the initiative is, hey, what if we had these 22 movies and they were all of a piece and there is a certain amount of control, visual and, and technical control and story control that we have to have if our agenda is to make essentially one giant movie. Uh, and, and so, you know, I... I I can I can sort of feel that. Yeah, and uh, there's there certainly is uh, a pro and con in each direction. I mean, obviously, the way that uh, that Marvel is running in Star Wars is they're they're kind of controlling these reins in such a way where I think it the the downside I think is it, it tends to feel a little bit more corporate where they're really kind of having this kind of dictation as to how everything's going to look and feel. And yes, they kind of create this overall world, and you feel very much a part of it. But at the same time, it's like I, I feel like there's a little less uh, originality and, and I just don't think they stand out as much. And while in you will certainly have the peaks and valleys in this franchise that I think show why may, sometimes that doesn't work, I do think that you there is a little more originality. And there are plenty of problems with this film, but I do feel it's very original and I still have a lot of fun with it. 
Well, and and obviously it worked in spite of uh, you know I, I, our any critique we may have it it it's no slouch, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit. I you know I have this just sort of litany of bullets of things that were interesting to me, uh, and they're not really connected in any way, shape, or form. Okay, shall we just run through them quickly and then let's do it? Jump into the deep scene. Dive. Okay, first, uh, uh, the the Enterprise is only on screen for a minute and a half in this movie, and uh, uh, for some reason, I find that um, I, I'm really glad after this movie that they worked the Enterprise in. You know, I think it would have been easy to go a different route, and I love seeing it. I love seeing the Enterprise A when it comes over the the Excelsior. A minute and a half. That's uh, and that's just that one because I mean they do. Technically, if you want to get oh, technical, yeah. they do have some shots of the exploding version at the very they start do. where we're watching the movie. You're right. <laughs> the vid screen when, movie When version. we're watching Star Trek 3 inside of Star Trek 4. That's fair. Right. Um, <laughs> Beam me up, Scotty, uh, is a, a line that is, uh, you know, wildly used and quoted, but it is a quote of nothing. Uh, Kirk never said the words, beam me up, Scotty. He got close uh, throughout the series and the films. The closest he got is in this film where he says, Scotty, beam me up. That is actually used in this movie, and uh, I I like that a lot. I like it also because uh, "Beam Me Up, Scotty" was was not actually used, and that's a that's a thing. Not even in the TV show. That's crazy. Yeah, crazy. Uh, the the other piece did you did you happen to watch the uh, the tour of uh, making the films with Leonard Nimoy shot circa nineteen eighty eight. I watched a number of things. I I don't think I saw that one, but I did see an ILM thing that I think is gonna probably talked about the same stuff well maybe this one i liked for a very specific reason and that is uh they it's it's clearly you know we're looking at leonard he's giving us a tour of paramount and suddenly there's this huge like high angle shot and i mean like high angle like we're eight stories above a parking lot and you know the resolution is terrible it's very very old footage but it's slowly you hear leonard nimoy talking and he says oh he's talking it's like over but you can't tell what's going on in the parking lot Uh, until it starts to slowly zoom in. You realize, oh, there's a little figure, and that's not somebody walking to his car. That's Leonard Nimoy, and he's still narrating from eight stories uh, below us on this angle, and he says, uh, I am standing in this Paramount parking lot right now. Well, at the time, if you turn around, you see this big blue wall that was used as a backdrop for us. It turns out as we were trying to figure out where we were going to film the water stuff, uh, we discovered that this parking lot had seams and that, in fact, beneath it, filled with sand, was one of the earliest or one of the early Paramount tanks that they used to film early you know, water battles. And we actually, uh, uh, we actually dug it up. We uncovered the parking lot. We dug out all the sand and we used it to film a lot of the surface stuff. So the, you know, after the uh, warbird crashes, uh, so the the very fin- final scene when the crew is exiting the top of the warbird and, and they're laughing and frolicking in the storm. Uh, that was shot in this particular tank. I love that story that there was this buried tank underneath Paramount. Uh, and that they managed to use it. And that ended up being a cost-effective way to shoot the water stuff. You know what that speaks to? What? Poor management. Poor paperwork. <laughs> like, how does how does a tank get buried, like, under a parking lot, and nobody knows? It's like, it's the same company, people. Yeah. They Where, have to like, just where's the notice. <laughs> oh, hey, if you need the tank, it's under the parking lot. Yeah, filled with sand. <laughs> Great. Um oh. 
I actually, I really like the whales, and I think that... I love uh, the whales. I, I think the whales look great. 95% of the whale footage is man-made, and the best, I think the real highlight of the whales, not, I mean, they have the big mechanical splashy tail and all that, but my goodness, the miniature whales, they had two four-foot miniature remote control whales that looked amazing. They were great. I actually never knew they were fake whales until I was watching these special features. I thought that they they had like oceanographers like who had captured whale footage and that they just they you know with special effects they somehow integrated the whale footage into the film. Like that's uh, maybe just my naive brain, but I really thought that it was real whale footage this the entire time. And so I Me really too. was floored when I watched the footage of those remote <laughs> control whales. Way to go ILM really blew me away. Truly, truly fantastic. But I have to say, I swear I heard them say all the whale footage was uh, man-made. So I'm wondering if the 5% that you found is the actual, like, footage of the real whales uh, being uh, skinned and, and, uh, you know, killed. Like, was it, were those, the, was that the real whale? Like, where was Possibly. Other... This was in the, uh, this was the Leonard Nimoy, uh, that same interview, uh, where he oh, okay. says kind of off the cuff, 95% of the whale footage is man-made. My, my hunch is, yes, that there was the whale footage that was of the, at the Cetacean Institute. There's also, uh, was the helicopter shot of the whales over the um, ocean when they're released? Was that real whale? I don't know if they were able to do that. It is fake whale because they um, they were it was an interview. They were talking to um, Harv or I think it was Harv or, or I can't remember. But they were talking about how no, it was somebody from ILM saying that they were using all this footage of these whales and that animal rights activists, when they saw the footage, got really upset because when you go, you know, taking your boats around the whales, it can sometimes really disturb them and stuff. And so these people were really happy to say, no, 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 none of it was real whales. We were using just a, yeah. Well, I would take that as a, because the way he says it is not scientific uh, in in this Leonard Nimoy uh, Paramount bit. So, you know, it's, I don't, I don't know beyond that, but, um, Maybe that was the five percent. Is the horrific uh, the real, cutting up of the yeah, whales? Yeah. yeah, that was terrible. Uh, the probe noise. Oh, the uh, the the other miniature thing that I love so much is the Huey over San Francisco Bay. Oh, uh, that was great. Yeah, I. That's another one. I had no idea was a miniature because why would I imagine that a helicopter flying over San Francisco Bay was it was a miniature? But it turns out, getting a Huey to fly over San Francisco Bay is not something that they could do uh, affordably, and uh, after hanging a giant pallet of you know this transparent aluminum underneath it, so uh, they went to Japan and found a model uh, that. They brought back with no English instructions, and they built it. It was a model Huey. They built it, and they flew that, um, just a trick of perspective, shooting from Alcatraz over to the city to get the skyline right. And they just flew it nice and close to the camera, and it looked like uh, it looked like a giant Huey flying way in the distance. I think that's brilliant. Just it was brilliant. crazy. It was crazy. I, I love the, this is something I love about the, the minds of effects people when they really kind of work to come up with, with problems or with solutions to problems that they have like that. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier to get away with stuff now that it's all CG 
But back then, when they would really have to think about these things and come up with these solutions, it's just it, it was such a creative time. I really love what all of these people were just doing. It's just it's exciting to think about. I totally agree. Uh, the, my last point uh, that I found interesting that I had to actually have told to me is a reminder that in this film, no one is hurt as a result of hostility. Hmm. Right. No one is phasered. Uh, no. no one is, you know, no one has disappeared onto a, a planet, um, you know, left marooned, buried alive. No one yeah, is Chekhov, hurt as a result of hostility. Chekhov is, is running, but yep. he falls. He falls. That That, that is, you know, um, that that's not a, a, a hostile engagement. That's an accident. Yeah, right. Uh, right. And that's something I think they're really proud of in making this movie, that it's an action movie. It's an adventure movie. And uh, and and um, it, it doesn't involve it still gets its message across, even though a bit heavy handed, it does it without actually showing any, um, you know, any hostility like that. I thought that was that was good. Well, and that goes to the whole point of, I think, what uh, Leonard Nimoy and, and Harv Bennett were really going for with this story really lightening things up and and just taking a different approach with the franchise and maybe it is one that gene roddenberry on looking at it would be more appreciative of because of those elements yeah uh let's uh let's jump into the deep scene dive deep scene dive deep scene dive we're jumping into one scene that we feel like uh exemplifies the quality workmanship the the true corinthian leather of the film uh, and uh, in in that scene, you picked the scene this week. You want to set it up? This is uh, you know they have just gotten the message about the uh, uh, this this sound, and they've they figured out what it is. It is humpback whales, and of course they are extinct now. And the only ones that they can get are in in uh, late twentieth century um, San Francisco, and so they decide they're going to go back through time. I love that where, what's he say? You know, Spock, start your computations for time warp. (laughs) (laughs) This is so fantastic. And then, and and this is our sequence. It's the time travel sequence. So we get to uh, see them uh, start the process in the warbird, fly around the sun, do the slingshot and come back. We get this crazy, like, you know, dream sequence, I guess, inside uh, Kirk's head. And then they uh, they appear uh, in the uh, 20th century. I believe if if the script we're looking at linked in the in the uh, show notes here, it, we're starting at around 60 scene 63, space series of shots, the slingshot. Engage computers. Prepare for warp speed. Shields, Mister Chekhov. Shields, I. May fortune favor the foolish. Warp speed, Mr. Zulu. Warp two. Warp three. Steady as she goes. Warp four. Maximum. Warp 9. 9 
Why was this one an important one to you? Because there's, there's, you know, in, in terms of looking at what the, um, what it does for the film, it's the thing that gets us, you know, from from here to there. Uh, but what is it that's interesting about what's going on on screen that that you um, find interesting? One, this was uh, really an opportunity to get uh, almost all of our primary seven Star Trek characters on the screen together. The only one missing in this particular bit is James Duhon, who's down in the engine room. Uh, but but we do get uh, this funky little uh, kind of uh, CG version of him in the dream sequence. Um, and so it's nice kind of getting all of them together. Uh, you know, it's this mission with the team, the core team. We haven't really had a scene yet where we've had all of the core team yet. And so that was kind of exciting. Um, plus, this is a really kind of effects intensive sequence. And I think that was kind of a, a something that I thought was worth looking at in context of this franchise. Is I mean, it's it takes place in the future. And we've got this fantastic warbird that they're flying. We've got a slingshot around the sun. We've got this uh, dream sequence. We get uh, physical effects as the ship starts kind of breaking up as it's trying to hit warp 10. So there's kind of a lot of stuff happening. And uh, it's it's uh, it's just kind of, you know, it's exciting. It's it's a chance to see this this wacky version of time travel. I, I think the practical effects leading up to the actual time travel, right, that you mentioned in the ship when the... the bridge starts sort of breaking up really celebrates uh nichelle nichols uh talent uh at just looking generally shocked and overwhelmed (laughs) and gorgeous while she's doing it, and gorgeous while she's doing it (laughs) she owned the shock in a way that yes uh, it does you did post a a clip to a a previous uh uh, nichelle nichols film do you want to talk a little bit about that at all Nichelle Nichols is uh, an actress who's been around for quite a while and has done quite a number of projects. And that was from a, uh, what year was it? 1974 blaxploitation film called Truck Turner. And uh, yeah, she's uh, Dorinda, the uh, kind of the madam (laughs) at a brothel, apparently. I've never seen the film, but it's definitely a side of her that I have never seen before. And so I thought it was interesting to kind of look at and just kind of say, yeah, this is this is Nichelle Nichols in all of her glory. Um, but, you know, she's just an interesting actress. I, I, I don't know. I liked seeing a different side of her because I don't know if I had seen anything other than her as Uhura. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's why I wanted you to just bring up, you know, Truck Turner, because uh, I, I, A, I feel like she clearly drew on the research for her role as Dorinda in Star Trek V. Uh, so there's <laughs> She's that. doing her dancing. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but second, it, it just makes you reflect on how much uh, these films and this series 
um, delivered for good or ill the careers of so many of these people, right? That they, you know, when you see not just one or two people that become known for their central character that they play, right? It's it's not just that. It's an entire cast of people who largely uh, don't have a central, right, mass market sort of pop culture uh, role that they're known for beyond this series. And they've done other work. Clearly, they've done other work. You know, we know that, um, you know, Shatner did his, quote, police drama, <laughs> uh, which shall not be named, apparently. But um, it is, uh, I just find it interesting that no ma- that this is the gift of a career for so many people. Absolutely. And it's funny because I, you know, I started looking at Nichelle Nichols after watching that, that clip from Truck Turner. And it's like, man, she is like, she has a really impressive career. She was twice nominated for the Sarah Siddons Award for Best Actress in The Blacks and Kicks and Company. Um, she was, what I found was really interesting. She was invited to join the board of directors of the National Space Institute. Um, and NASA asked her to participate in an astronaut recruitment program. Um, and what was interesting is three of the recruits that she brought to them were on the Challenger mission, which uh, which blew up and, and um, which is mentioned at the start of this film um, in memory of it. And it was very interesting that she was like really kind of in the spotlight because of her uh, her role. And, I, you know, that's something Gene Roddenberry brought to this franchise is, is putting people like her and and uh, and George Takei in roles that they normally you wouldn't see uh, in African-American or in Asian-American in these roles. And it's exciting to just see them as you know, regular old Joes working with other people and doing jobs, not just kind of something that's much more stereotypical. And uh, yeah, so it's I think it's great to see them in like this. I do too. Um, let's, uh, let, I just want to read the uh, time travel sequence as it is in the script version that we have because, uh, well... Here it is. Uh, now we've we have been outside of the ship. We've been exterior to the bird of prey, um, and then we move into essentially the the engine uh, into from outside through the engine into Kirk's head, and then we have this time travel sequence. We are inside Kirk's mind as we see a series of hypnotic dream images floating up from Kirk's subconscious, undulating figures which float toward us and pass, liquid faces, amorphous figures, images of Kirk's shipmates in semi-transparent ghostly shapes, aging and regressing, Kirk's image of himself running toward himself, underwater looking up at a sunlight-dappled surface, gently waving strands of reeds at an abstract shoreline, Disembodied voices, sounds, and music add to the hypnotic effect, and then a whooshing roar begins to mount and grow louder until it climaxes with a terrible bang. And we cut to the uh, starfield, and we're back outside the ship. Um, that is that is what was written in the script. I am surprised at just how close the final effect sequence ended up to that. It feels like yeah. such kind of a random like, string of words. Uh, it, but that's that's what it is. Well, my sense is that because um, talking when I was listening to an interview with uh, Mark Mangini, uh, the sound effects editor, it sounded like when he looked at the script, it said, and then they travel through time. It was something that was much more vague. <laughs> and right, he's just right. like, OK, what do I have to do here? Um, I, my sense is, especially because it says time travel sequence, subjective, subjective ILM. Yeah. 
it, well, and it has that ILM in there. I think mm-hmm. that this was after um, they had kind of put a lot more thought into some of the specifics of, of the imagery so that ILM really had something to work with. Um, that's just my guess. Yeah. Because that's like really specific script. Yeah. And it makes for a not fun read. You know, it's this is not what you'd normally want to read with your script. So I'm guessing that... And um, then they travel because, through time. Yeah. yeah, is probably the right. the better thing. What talk a little bit about the sound though, because the sound is, I think, it, it makes the sequence. I think all of it really comes together the way that you've got this, you know, the fantastic shaky ship as it's uh, as kind of, as letting you know that this ship is under a lot of duress as it's trying to hit warp 10. But you get just the intense building of the sound, which I think is great. Um, I, I love that they had, you know, uh, the, the sound effects editor had this guy like beating a dumpster and using that sound effect to kind of uh, every time they'd hit the next warp is kind of like, um, you know, the, uh, um, uh, what is it when they go through a, a different barrier, like a sound barrier, yeah, this sound is barrier, like the right. warp barrier. Every time they'd go through it, you kind of hear this boom, this really kind of loud, but it's slowed down kind of bang happening as it kind of pops through that next warp barrier. Um, and I, I love that they kind of were really exploring and playing around with some of that sort of stuff. It's, it's a, a lot of noise, I guess. You get a lot of noise in this until you hit the time travel bit and then it's, it becomes really quiet and you're really kind of in Kirk's head as you're hearing, uh, just interesting, like little drifting lines from each of these faces as they, as they appear and disappear, um, until you start hearing whale song. It, it is very cool. Much of the, you know, Don Peterman's uh, uh, camera um, on this, and it, it's a little bit hard to judge uh, based on the sequence because so much of it is, is effects. I was curious what your thoughts were on, on what we saw here. Don Peterman, I mean, jumping ahead, you know, he got nominated for an Oscar for his work on this film, on shooting this film. And I was really perplexed as to why, because I didn't find anything that stood out too much, except maybe some of the work here on the ship. I mean, it's it's an interesting lighting work done here. You know, you've got some dramatic underlight, like when you, when Sulu is at, working at his post, that underlight kind of hitting him from underneath. Um, it's pretty interesting. And then as they kind of you know go around the sun and you get kind of that fade to white and then everything is bathed in this white when we see uh, um, uh, Kirk sitting there kind of uh, passed out. And it's, I, you know, I, I don't know. I guess that's it. I, I, I was really kind of perplexed because I didn't find the camera work in this film any any more of a standout than we what we saw in Star Trek Three. It you know nothing jumped out at me. It seemed very expected. I mean, there's there's some there's a push uh, or a pullback from Kirk when he wakes up, and the lights kind of change from the red to the normal, and he wakes up, and and that was kind of the one big camera movement that's not effects. Otherwise, you know, I don't know, nothing stood out for me camera wise. Yeah, especially once we get to San Francisco, right? I mean, everything oh, yeah. looks even more sort of prescribed. Um, than uh, 
and, and we don't have the benefit. I mean, it could just as well be any other show, kind of a walk and talk show uh, on television, uh, which may be part of its, you know, part of its sort of mastery <laughs> that it actually blends in quite so well uh, with what we were watching at the time. I don't know. Um, but it, it feels um, it it. It doesn't feel like a like a nomination film for me. There are some interesting things about this film that that I think Nimoy talks about that he really uh, he was in, in this particular piece that I'm talking about. He talks at length about the perils of pan and scan uh, related to this film, and because we don't really deal with pan and scan anymore. Uh, yeah, I, that'd be curious to look at. <laughs> it, it is really interesting because so much of what he wants to do on this film uh, between. Peterman and and Nimoy is go wide and there are uh, you know I didn't even think about this until I'm I was watching this uh, all of these great scenes that are just terrible for four three like for example when all three uh, Spock Kirk and uh, and and Jillian are in the truck together that's a, a We've we've got one wide shot where we see the cab of the truck and all three were from the perspective of the hood. We're looking at all three of them talking. And it's a great sequence because we have so much of them trying to hide the fact that they're from the future. And she's trying to probe them and, and get all this information out of them. And what is so important about whenever she's talking, we have to see what's going on on Kirk's face or Spock's face. But when you look at that pan and scan, it's sliding all over the place, right? You You never see what's going on on his face while she's talking and vice versa. It's just a disaster. And I thought it was really interesting to look at the sequences that that Nimoy says were just really terrible for him uh, in in post-production for uh, watching it on uh, for home release, uh, that it ended up just being disastrous. Well, and you certainly like even some of this. I mean, he really spreads the crew out across that right. whole bridge. And yeah, you're going to be chopping a good number of people out. And then when you jump into the effects, certainly you're going to be losing um, just a lot of elements. So, exactly. Yeah. Even the the last shot, the money shot, where he and the crew are uh, in that Chevron formation, uh, in the looking into from outside of the shuttlecraft as they come off, uh, come over the Excelsior. Uh, my friends, we've come home that you're only getting half a shot in the pan and scan. And that is one of those shots that Nimoy said, you know, it's like, it's such pain. It's not what we intended. Uh, and it, it's something that we're just learning. Of course, he's speaking contemporaneously. He says, we're just learning how to how to do this so that it works for both home release and, and for cinema. And it's really hard. Um, going back to the effects work, um, particularly that dream sequence, listening to the ILM guys talking about how they put that together, um, I mean, it certainly helps reading it the way that uh, it was written in the in the script that we have linked. Um, but it's like what they did, this was a really exciting time where they were really starting to figure out uh, what they could do with computer graphics. What they did is they actually had, they, they found this company um, I think in the Bay Area that uh, I can't remember what they're called. Um, I have Cyberdyne in my head, and I know that's not right. But <laughs> <laughs> they're but known for something, something else. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But these guys uh, would scan somebody's head, and their their system would make a styrofoam mold of their head. And so ILM had them do that for each of the, uh, the seven um, principal characters. And then they digitized those into their system, and then they came up with a way to actually morph from one head to the next. So as as rough as the effect looks today, 
it still was really exciting to watch because they're blending so many things. They have that that fog, that kind of cloudy fog that they're all kind of coming up and out of. Then they have the computer effect itself. They have kind of the whales, kind of the funky whale things coming from behind that are kind of um, dissolving closer and closer. Um, so there are a lot of really exciting elements in this, not to mention then you've got like the puppet man that is kind of falling toward Earth in a cloud, and then all of a sudden it's falling toward us, and then it's like landing in water. I mean, there's just there's a lot of interesting stuff here, the way that they blend it all together. Um, I, I appreciated more what ILM was really doing with this film and the effects that they were working with to make something really kind of exciting and unique. And and talking about time travel, how do you depict that? And then coming up with this kind of interesting uh, way to see, see time travel through the mind of an unconscious Kirk is, I guess, what we get. So I, I thought it was a really creative uh, way to look at it. What did you think of the music? Well, luckily, Pete, <laughs> there's not really much music to speak of in this sequence. It's mostly sound effects. Um, <laughs> but man, this music, Leonard Rosenman, uh, and I'm going to go off on it later when we start talking about awards, but Leonard Rosenman's music is just uh, just some of the most awful stuff. And it's, I think, the biggest embarrassment in the entire Star Trek franchise it's just the worst and i mean i swear it's it starts off okay because he goes back to alexander courage's theme when we first kick off and we get the the title and everything and then all of a sudden it turns into like christmas bells or something like i have no idea what his goal was with the score for this film but it's so opposite everything that speaks to star trek he didn't even try to incorporate everything and the only reason he's here is because he's buddies with leonard nimoy and this is the one where they let him have more um more uh reign with how he wanted to do things and that's what he did and it is embarrassing is it this main like is that the theme that you hate so much yeah, it's just all of it. Like, it's like TV music is what it is. It's like something that you would get on a TV movie. I, I, you are riled up. This is, this yeah. is your Warbird Bridge. This like. is my Warbird Bridge. It absolutely yeah. is. <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to let you have that. I, I, uh, I, this is not my favorite music, uh, in the, the series. I agree with you there. I listened to it because I know how you feel about it. And I hadn't, I, I hadn't, uh, uh, it's like an oral memory of it before I sat down to watch it again. And I tried to get really, really angry because, <laughs> but, but I, I couldn't muster that. that. <laughs> I really tried. <laughs> I want you to know I tried. I couldn't muster it. It felt out of context to me. I, I absolutely agree there. It didn't feel like uh, it, it was necessarily, and it, particularly when they go into San Francisco, when their boots on the ground in San Francisco, I hated the music. And, and it just, it, it, I did, it just didn't, I, I didn't like it. I just was, ugh, it didn't like it. But overall, uh, I didn't find myself as enraged by by uh, you know his score Rosenman's score uh, as you I tried I couldn't quite get there. <laughs> well, I'm glad you tried. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, got it. You got it. I got to try. Um, th- there was a piece of music that was written specifically uh, for the film, not by Rosenman. Uh, shall we talk about the angry punk on the bus? Oh, I think we should. <laughs> Is he your favorite part of the movie? He's not my favorite, but I. 
as silly as it is, I have always loved that scene. I think it's just fantastic. It just makes me laugh, but it's done it's done more effectively than a lot of the other um, gag scenes are. I just I like that Kurt, that Spock gives him the Vulcan uh, uh, neck pinch, and uh, I think that's a lot of fun. The uh, this is uh, we're talking about what's his name now, Kirk. Um, Kirk Thatcher. Kirk Thatcher. He was a uh, he was on the crew, um, and the song that he wrote. I mean, he was supposed to represent like the the uber stereotype of this punk youth that you know uh, that was all enraged. It was sort of the opposite of Star Trek and everything Star Trek represents. And to hear him talk about it, he said he, he wrote the music, and he said, "Well, what is exactly the opposite of Star Trek? Sort of love and peace." Uh, he said, "Well, how about I hate you?" So they just wrote the song "I Hate You." Um, they it was him and the and the sound engineer. They sat down and they they recorded. All of the the instruments on one take, and uh, they used the microphone that they had <laughs> that they used to mic the slate to record the whole thing, and then they recorded the lyrics. Him singing the lyrics, so he's actually singing his own song. I hate you. I berate you. Uh, and uh, they did that in one take. And then it was his idea, apparently, to actually have his head slamming down on the boombox to turn it off. Uh, which I, that is actually, that's a, one of the slapstick sort of sitcom gags I really like. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's very funny. Yeah, he's an interesting uh, guy, this Kirk Thatcher, because he is kind of in the art department side of things and the special effects kind of uh, side of things. And he kind of came up in that world working. I, I, he was even a special effects assistant on Star Trek Three, which I think is kind of interesting. And then, and then here he is. He was, I think... Uh, Nimoy said that he was his liaison to the ILM team. And uh, yeah, he ended up in that scene, which I think is is pretty funny. I think so, too. I think it's just great. Just a note. He was in Spider-Man Homecoming as Punk on Street. <laughs> Are you serious? I did not see that. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> I think that's the best. I, oh. I totally missed him, too. But I saw his credit as that on IMDb. So. Somebody else also again. loves Kirk Thatcher. <laughs> right now I have to see it again. That's awesome. Um, uh, any other highlights on cast and crew that we want to bring out as we... I just think that uh, we should point out that uh, we do see uh, Brock Peters popping up here. Uh, I think that he's somebody that we might want to pay attention to because we will be seeing more of him uh, in yes. uh, a couple films from now. Yeah, he's Admiral Cartwright in this. Yeah, before he breaks bad. What? I was. I wasn't gonna say it. You <laughs> went there. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, and, we've already talked about Rand. Who else? Uh, and Major Barrett. Uh, and Jane. Jane Wyatt pops up. She's. Uh, she was Spock's mother in the show, and she's back as Spock's mother here. And she's one of those actresses who has just been around for a very long time. And and uh, yeah, here she is uh, popping up again as Spock's mother. I love that they work on keeping that sort of consistency. Oh, definitely, and uh, oh, and and Jane Weedland too, uh, who is was the guitarist for the Go Go's, uh, oh, yeah? shows up in it. Yes, she is. Uh, you, there's a sequence in it's a shot where we have the three big monitors in Starfleet in San Francisco, and the monitors start to go down, and on the right monitor is this woman with a funny curly cue of her hair. That's Jane Weedland. She's a guitarist for the Go Go's. And oh, I, I know about Jane Weedland because I was so in love with Belinda Carlisle. Oh my God. That's hilarious. That was a, that was a tough one 
for yours truly. <laughs> that was that was tough. Uh, so that you know, I do want to say one more thing about the script, and we've because we talked about you know Harv Bennett, Nicholas Meyer, we talked about Peter Kreiks and Steve Mearson, and how they were just sort of um, you know kind of dropped out of the conversation, and uh, I. I know this has been floating around there. This is not new news, but I just love every time I hear it that according to these guys, the secret in their head, the reason that Savick does not get on the Warbird and fly back to Starfleet is because, according to them, she was pregnant with Spock's baby. What? what? Right, and they were already planning for a Star Trek after this one, which was going to tell the story of Spock as a parent. I kind of like that direction. I think that would have been a really interesting uh, journey for us to take. And I would maybe go that route instead of Star Trek V. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a Star Trek story. Spock, a Star Trek story. Uh, uh, that's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, aluminum oxynitride, Andy. Aluminum yes. oxynitride. Do you know what this is? Tell me. It's transparent aluminum, Andy. Transparent aluminum, or sort of, it's amazing really? that it actually sort of exists. Yes, uh, it is marketed under the name Alon by Sermet Corporation, and uh, it is used. It is a lightweight, high-performance, transparent armor application, such as bulletproof and blast-resistant windows, and other many military infrared optics. It has been known to stop multiple armor-piercing projectiles of up to fifty caliber. Commercially available in sizes as big as 18 by 35 inch monolithic windows. So it's not, you can't quite get as big as they have it on this thing, but that is the magic of Star Trek that they invented transparent aluminum and then they invented transparent aluminum. But could it, could you make a whale tank out of it? That's the real question I have. (laughs) Well, as a, here's what it says as a transparent armor material, Aeon provides a bulletproof product with far less weight and thickness than traditional bulletproof grass. It has been dubbed transparent aluminum, a.k.a. right here, after a fictional Star Trek material. 1.6-inch thick Alon armor is capable of stopping a 50 BMG uh, armor-piercing rounds, which can penetrate 3.7 inches of traditional glass laminate. So that doesn't actually tell me anything about whale-sized tanks, uh, but my goodness, it still, uh, it still lightens my heart. Science coming from science fiction. I love it's it. all about the science. Uh, did this right. win any science awards? Uh, it didn't win any science awards, but it was nominated for, uh, it, well, it had four wins and 17 nominations. At the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Cinematography, uh, surprisingly, um, but it lost to The Mission, rightly so. Rightfully. Uh, it was nominated for Best Sound. Uh, Terry Porter, David J. Hudson, Mel Metcalf, and Gene S. Cantamesa. Did a great job with the sound. I don't have any issues with the sound in this film. But they lost to Platoon. I think that probably was a fair loss. Um, likewise, I think Mark Mangini did a great job with the sound effects editing. Uh, and he did. He was nominated for an Oscar. But lost to Aliens. I also think that's a fair loss. Um, best music original score, Pete. So first of all, <laughs> the fact that Leonard Rosenman was nominated for an Oscar for this score... I will never be able to look at this film the same just for that reason. It makes me so mad. Um, it lost to Round Midnight. Um, Herbie Hancock did the score for that. Um, weirdly, I've never heard the score. I've never seen the film. 
But this is the year that we also had nominated James Horner's Aliens, Jerry Goldsmith's Hoosiers, both Star Trek uh, um, uh, people who had uh, done the previous scores, and the fantastic Ennio Morricone Morricone score for The Mission. Um, All of those scores lost to uh, Herbie Hancock's score for Around Midnight. I don't know what was going on in people's heads in 1986, but I, uh, I maybe I have to listen around midnight because Aliens, Hoosiers, The Mission, those are three incredible scores. Oh, The Mission uh, Leonard, in particular of all of those. Yeah, is stunning. of all of those. That's the one that I would have said yeah. should have won. That is truly just one of the great scores. Um, so this is just a really strange year uh, to look at. Like, what were they thinking back in 1986 with the score um, score Oscar? Who knows? No, man, this is something really to. I think really we shouldn't be really mad about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be mad. I'm going to just be mad the rest of the week <laughs> thinking about this. You be about, mad about the eclipse. I'll be mad about this. I am still. I am so mad about the Warbird Bridge. I don't. I'm not going <laughs> right. to sleep tonight for sure. Uh, how did it do uh, in the box office? Well, uh, with Leonard Nimoy having proven himself, as we said, Paramount gave him more money and control over Star Trek IV. This film cost $24 million to make, or $52.8 million in today's dollars. The movie was the big Thanksgiving opener, hitting theaters wide November 26th, 1986, opposite Solar Babies. And I think I actually saw this as a double feature, not as a double feature intentionally with Solar Babies, but I think we went to one and then we went to the other. Um, so that was my science fiction Thanksgiving of 1986, apparently. Um, it opened at number one and held on to that slot uh, just for one more week before it was dethroned by The Golden Child and Three Amigos. Um, Star Trek IV went on to make $109.7 million domestically and $65 million internationally, making a grand total in today's dollars of $384.5 million. This gives the movie an adjusted profit per finished minute of $2.8 million. The best of the series thus far. That being said, Khan still has the best profit-to-cost ratio, making back nearly eight times its budget, and Star Trek The Motion Picture still has the highest profit, grossing about an adjusted $75 million more than any of its competition. That's a, uh, still a crazy surprise. I know, and they thought it was a failure. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> uh, so what's your, what's your final thought on this movie um, before we get into ranking it? Um, where do you where do you feel like this? Uh, what do you feel like this has done to your investment in Star Trek? I I still will always hold a place for this one in my heart. This is one of those movies that I think I can watch despite its problems and enjoy. Um, I I I am always now going to probably be struggling with more of the screenplay issues now that I'm a lot more aware of kind of the what goes into writing a good story, what a good story should look like. Um, it's going to be a really frustrating watch, but I think I will still always, I hope I will always still be able to kind of step away from that and just enjoy this because I do still find it a really enjoyable film. I really enjoy the characters throughout. I think they all have some really shining moments and um, it's it's fun. It just, it, it is light and I do end up liking that and it keeps me uh, kind of you know, happy throughout. So I, I will perpetually be at odds with this, but still hopefully enjoying it. I, I'm with How's you. That for a I, long-winded it, way to get around to it. You, uh, you liked it. I get it. 
<laughs> no, you know, I'm I'm with you. And I said when we started this whole thing, I'm more of a of a, a Star Trek guy than a Star Wars guy. And that this movie, I I know it sounds like I'm probably unnecessarily harsh and angsty about this film and and uh, about the last film too, uh, which is part of the sort of. I don't know, just putting on the old next real lab coat, you know, it, it's hard for me to sit down and look at a film that any of these films that I'm so close uh, to, uh, I was so close to, like you said, as a kid and, and look at them with adult eyes and really, you know, be critical of them. Uh, it's way too easy to find stuff that's crazy. I, you know, in my heart of hearts, I love this movie like I love all the movies and, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I, I, I I look forward to this movie, you know, I've already seen it with my family. It is still fun to watch uh, with my kiddos. They still laugh a lot at these jokes, even jokes they don't get. What the heck is a boombox, Dad, you know? Um, <laughs> so why is that funny, you know? It's, I'm okay explaining those things. It's, it's Star Trek. I'm okay. Yeah. I think it's time for us to rank it, Andy. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel or swipe over in your show notes. You'll see a link to Flickchart right there. You can tap on it on your mobile device and jump straight over to the Flickchart page so you can add this to your list. Let's see how it stacks up. All right. Star Trek for the Voyage Home or Hot Fuzz. Well, it's a rough start, Andy, but I'm going to say Hot Fuzz. <laughs> I am too, and I feel, I'm worried that that's putting Star Trek Four in a weird place on it the is. list. But yeah, oh, it's a weird place already. I know. Star Trek 4 or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Star I will Trek say Star 4. Trek 4. Yep. yep. Star Trek 4 or Gremlins. Definitely Gremlins for me. Uh, I'm on Star Trek 4 on this one. All right, let's do it. It's worth it. Yeah. So is Gremlins. One, <laughs> one two, two, three, three scissors. <laughs> I just said that straight up. There was no pausing. There was no nothing. It even sounded like you said paper after I said scissors. I don't know why you would have done that. I didn't. I, I said paper before you said scissors. That's that is not what I of, heard. That's the joy of Skype. <laughs> I am sitting here thinking, why is Andy sacrificing himself? <laughs> <laughs> the greater good. Okay. Star Trek Four or Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. I really love Baby Jane, but I'm going to say Star Trek Four. Yeah, I'm going to say Star Trek Four too. Star Trek Four or The Bank Job. Haven't seen that pop up in a while. Mm. Uh, still going to say Star Trek Four. <sighs> I might actually now say The Bank Job. On what grounds, sir? I, I think it's the better movie. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Besides I think that. It's, uh, <laughs> it doesn't have all the, 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 the nonsense, uh, the fish out of water nonsense. Um, I am going to say The Bank Job, actually. So you You're going to have it. You've made a good right. case, Andy. I, I'll <laughs> let that stand up in court. Star Trek Four or The Professional? Hmm, well, I would say Star uh, Trek Four. Uh, would you really like how hard? I, you know, I always have issues with Luke Besson, and I certainly have issues with, uh, with that film. Even though I think it might be my favorite of his, but I still think I'm going to say Star Trek Four. All right, I'll give you Star Trek Four. Star Trek Four or Panic Room? I, I think I'm going to go Panic Room. I think I am too. Oh. All right. There you go. Star Trek 4 is now 171 on our list out of 313. Okay. That so, feels awfully low, but... You know, it's do? interesting. So where is it on your personal flick chart? Well, first of all, what is what does that represent? Like, what what is the little magic number? 
that is uh, a little below halfway. Okay. See, for me, it's a 64 on my list. So it's so far, it's the lowest of the Trek movies, but it's still, you know, it, it's still, I would say, well above half. It, it's interesting, though. It actually dropped on my list. I re-ranked it. It went from 393 to 863 on a list of 3814. So that puts it at about an 87% on my list. Which, uh, you know, I, I've seen a lot of bad movies, so I think it's probably fair mm-hmm. uh, there. But, I mean, still, it represents, you know, a nearly 500-spot drop in the in my uh, uh, preference for it. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. I It's still uh, higher than mine. How is that? Yeah. That you end up more of a Trekkie on every one of these. Well, I've seen a lot of bad movies, Pete. <laughs> you sure have. That is the truth. What is this on your letterboxed, uh, letterboxed rating out of five stars? Uh, where does this land for you? I'm at just a 3.5 on this one. I feel like it was higher. I feel like it was probably a 4.5, but now I think it's down to a 3.5. You know, I'm I'm ranking this in with the other Trek movies that, as you know, we have not reached my very favorite Trek movie. And so um, it's a three star with a heart but it probably would have been three and a half if it weren't for that bridge. That's funny. Yeah, you lost that that bridge. Really that was the half-star bridge. Freedom, yeah, it? it killed it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, well, all right, there you go. There you go. What, do we do, uh, what do we do from where do we go from here? Well, we're going to be uh, leaving Leonard Nimoy's uh, helming of this universe, and we're going to jump over to William Shatner's entry and uh, give him a try as director, see how he does with Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Huh. That ought to be interesting. That's one way to describe it. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so I'm uh, looking hey, forward to seeing what he learned directing some of those episodes <laughs> of that cop show. That cop drama. <laughs> Me too. Uh, hey, uh, don't forget, everybody, uh, we've got our uh, upcoming uh, Saturday matinee. It comes out on Saturday, and it's right around matinee time, so uh, you should check it out. If The only way you can find it, though, is to uh, support us over at patreon.com slash thenextreel. And, um, you know, we've got, uh, we, we, it, it's brief, you know, it's right about a half hour. Uh, and uh, we talk about, um, you know, it's a little bit rougher, it's a little bit rougher of a, of a show. We don't edit it all that much. Believe it or not, it's rougher than this. Uh, and uh, but it's just a way to check in on the weekend and talk about some of the things we don't usually talk about on this show that we that we miss talking about that we used to talk about all the jibber jabber and flim flam that we used to talk about <laughs> it's it is a really fun thing and uh, and we hope you will help us out and support us and thank you everybody who has uh, helped us and supported us through Patreon um, so far uh, but, you know it, it's a small but growing but growing uh, army how about that. <laughs> It's a small I, I like but growing it. army of Next Real uh, Patreon supporters. We sure appreciate it. So again, to get access to that, and then come talk about it uh, in our Slack channel. We'd love to have you there too. That's, there's always something good to talk about over on Slack uh, in the Next Real channel. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Andy, for your time. As always, sir, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Well, this will be interesting because we haven't talked about what our Amazon picks are yet. And so we might have done the same one. That's crazy.
Uh, do we, I, I, you, would you like to go first, sir? Would you like to do the honors? I, 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 I should. Yeah. Okay. All right. now, now that you set that up so nicely. All right. Mine is a five star. Oh, it's not the same one. Yes. Oh, there you go. Okay. Five star. Um, this film should have won Oscars. <laughs> so saith David John Hall. Uh, this film should have won Oscars. This film needs to be revisited and awarded at least one Oscar. I think he's thinking of Leonard Rosenman. <laughs> the plot is sound. The language is appropriate. This film is a highly creative work of art. The quality of the acting beats a lot of the crap that is being put out today. Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner are not as stupid as they look. This <laughs> is a high quality film that was underrated in its day top top uh, uh, grossing star trek film so far this is an intelligent <laughs> film of all ages and for all ages sincerely david hall phd wow yeah, well, right. it's interesting your review uh, leading into my review because they spoke specifically about the language being appropriate. Uh, mine is a three star out of five from Polar Two, who says the swearing was unneeded. The movie would have been Ooh. excellent had they not added all the swearing. I could not wait for the movie to end because I did not know when they were going to swear again. They did not need the swearing for the movie to be enjoy an enjoyable movie that you could have watched over and over and over again. For me now, it was my first time watching it and the last. A friend told me it was about the Star Trek team in the future going back in time to find whales, male, female, to bring them back to, to their time to save their future. Boy, when my friends told me about it, I wanted to buy until they told me, no, you're not going to want to buy it. And they were so very right. They messed up an excellent movie by adding foul language. I was highly disappointed. Well, double dumbass on them. <laughs> what, what I would like to do, uh, I would like to encourage everybody to do is think of the foulest movie that you've ever seen and just think about the voyage home with actual swearing in it. Because I, I wonder, maybe, maybe it makes it a, uh, an even better movie. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>